Welcome to episode 3 of season 8 of Delving Into Dance. Most choreographers when they talk about their career looking back will talk about the importance of early opportunities. Opportunities to experiment, play and develop their skills as choreographers. The last episode and this one have focused on choreographers of the Chunky Moves Next Move program. A program that has been instrumental in a number of people's careers. But before I introduce this episode's interview, a quick update on the campaign to raise funds for episode transcription. I know everyone loves something for free, including podcasts, but there are real costs associated with projects like this. We want to make Delving to Dance more suitable for deaf audiences, and as a result, aim to transcribe all the episodes. We've managed to raise over 1,500 and are looking to raise another 1500 If all the weekly listeners contributed $5, we would hit the target in less than a week. If you can help, please contribute on the website delvingintodance.com. Every contribution will make a difference. Now back to regular programming. This episode is with Joel Bray. Joel came to dance quite late, leaving his law degree to pursue dance. Dance started as a way for Joel to connect with his Aboriginal culture. In this interview, I started by asking, what drew Joel to dance? It wasn't actually dance. I first, because I, I, my father's Aboriginal and my mother's European descent. And I was studying law at Sydney Uni and was completely bored and just decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I thought I would go and do this. I heard of this course, this, this college called NASA, um, which taught which was an Aboriginal college for dance. So it wasn't so much that dance I was interested in, it was the being in a community of black people for the first time, like being surrounded mostly by other Aboriginal people for the first time, um, and learning about my roots and an opportunity to learn traditional Aboriginal dance. And the audition, I was like 10 minutes into the audition, and I was like, oh yeah, 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 this is what I want to do. And uh, I haven't looked back. What was it about the movement then? Or the actual, like, audition? Nothing. I remember it was, it was, the first class was this kind of old-style jazz kind of thing. And it was like, um, it was this kind of like, um, a West Side Story kind of a vibe of thing, which is not me. And like, it wasn't even that I fell in love with the style. It was just moving, connecting with my body possibly for the first time. Because in high school, I didn't do anything artistic, I didn't do anything athletic, and I didn't do anything musical. So it's kind of weird for me that I ended up being a dancer, which is kind of a mix of all those three. Yeah, wow. Why, why were you interested in law? Why was law the thing that, I guess, and then you have this big U-turn? I was on the debating team. I was good at that. You know, I got really high marks in high school, but I didn't do any sciences. So everyone was like, oh, are you going to do law? Are you going to do medicine? And I was like, oh, I don't know, or law. It was a terrible decision. Like, I was completely, yeah, it was just not interested whatsoever. Do you ever draw upon law? No, but I definitely draw upon my kind of rhetorical skills of being a debater, that kind of way of analysing stuff, whether it's text or the world around you or movement. Identity is such a big focus on everyone's lives. They have, like, this identity kind of journey. What was that like for you kind of growing up then? Well, I remember being 
a student, like a tertiary student, and being exposed to the notion of postmodern for the first time. And I remember scratching my head and not really understanding what the big deal was because, you know, my, my childhood experience had been, my entire life experience at that point had been that there is no such thing as right or wrong. There is no truth and false. There's just infinite numbers of different perspectives and I'd experienced like a whole bunch of them, you know, like I would go on summers and I would hang out with my Wiradjuri father. Um, he lived up in Bundjalung country up near Moolambar and we, he lived in a little piece of old growth forest where clearings would be used to grow marijuana and we would run around naked and roll in the mud all summer. And then I'd go back to my white lower middle class, white picket fence lifestyle and go back to church and be the A student in school and inside myself, of course, I'm, you know, raging homosexual. So, like, I, it, it was weird. I look back on it now and I, I, I'm like, or people sometimes ask me, how did, how did you juggle all these things? I just didn't. I just kind of kept them separate. Yeah. They were like in their own little categories and you know, when I was in my room fantasizing about boys, I was gay. When I was at church, I was the good church boy. And when I was running around nude as a hippie, I was running around nude as a hippie. Did they ever collide? I well, eventually, yeah. They had to. Um, I managed to like hold it hold it all at bay for a really long time. But then, you know, I got out of high school and moved down to Sydney because I grew up in um, regional New South Wales. Um, and then yeah, everything collided. Yeah, and then I had to start making some choices about who I wanted to be. Was that a, a challenging time? Yeah, yeah. It was coming out. It was engaging with my cultural identity, my indigeneity, in a, like a real way, because all of a sudden I was on campus with other um, Aboriginal students and I became an activist and got involved in the student representative council as a representative for the Aboriginal students and started to question, you know, the role that my religion had been, had had in colonization and in the oppression of people like me, other queer people. So all of a sudden, yeah, I had to, I had to like do a bit of a spring clean and go, okay, well, what do I believe in? What What's true to me? And unfortunately, God kind of, we're on a trial separation that's going for a very long time. <laughs> he might come back. He might come back. You never know. Um, you just finished a Brisbane Festival show um, based in a hotel room. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a bit more about that work? Yeah. So it's called Biladering, which is the Wiradjuri word for the platypus. Um, I made the work last year for the Melbourne Fringe. Uh, and we did it in the Sofitel. I did it in the Sofitel Hotel. Um, and... Yeah, it's an intimate performance for about 15 to 20 people. And the premise is that I met them all downstairs in the bar and just spontaneously invited them all up to my hotel room. And then they kind of get there and I'm like, pour their pour everyone champagne. And I'm a little bit like, oh, shit, I didn't really think past this point. And then the, so the work of the premise is a little bit like, you know, having to entertain these people for an hour. Um, and the only thing I have really at my disposal is what's in the room and my own personal life stories. Uh, so yeah, so then this this is kind of and I, I I utilize everything in the room. So the Gideon Bible, the Kit Kat in the mini bar, the bathroom, the television runs all the music, um, my computer. So basically, my remit I gave myself was not to bring anything into the space, but to use what was there. Um, and it's a it's a kind of surfs from vocal storytelling to 
movement and back again, kind of. It's the kind of vibe of it. Incredibly intimate in that sense as well, like a small audience within a space with a show that's always quite different based on them. Intimate literally and metaphorically. Like everyone's half, you know, arm's length away. There's a moment, there's a scene where I give everyone hand massages with the toiletries from the um, bathroom. Um, And intimate metaphorically because I really seek to strip myself, um, literally I get naked, but also to kind of be as honest about my experiences and my poor decisions as a young adult and um, the struggles I have with being fair-skinned and Aboriginal and and just and not I don't seek to answer any questions because I don't have any answers to these questions but going yeah this is me right now in 2017 now 2018 and audiences have responded incredibly, and it's going really well. I did a season at the Darwin Festival, and like you say, just at the Brisbane Festival. And the audience, I guess, becomes almost a bit of a co-creator in that space as well. Mm. Yeah. I have a really short attention span, so I love a show that's different every time. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. It has to. It has to modulate and change depending on... Sometimes I do three shows a night, so there'll be a six o'clock, say a six o'clock, an eight o'clock, and a ten o'clock show, and there are three completely different audiences. You know, like you get some six o'clock shows where the old biddies have turned up, the blue rinse set, compared to the ten o'clock show, which is a whole bunch of like, you know, half of them are like bogans from the suburbs of Brisbane turning up a little bit charged up. Like, they're two very different shows. <laughs> Jumping it halfway through and think, did I do this in this show or did I do the first show? Completely. You know, once it, like, you know, I did, like, I did in Brizzy, I did 13 shows in four days. And I'm, one of the things I try to do is remember everyone's name because it helps, like, getting them, asking them to do things or whatever. And then at, at some point I just gave up trying to remember names because I just had tried to hold hundreds of names in my head, you know. And I'm just like, you and the blue shirt. (laughs) (laughs) You've danced all around the world. Do you find that different spaces and places inform the way you dance or the way you relate to an audience? Yes. But probably more accurately, it's the other dancers in that space who inform me. So I was in Israel for nine years. And Israeli dancers and Israeli dance makers have this kibbutznik, roll up your sleeves, let's get down and dirty and just make it kind of a vibe, which is great. The end result is often not what you would call polished dancing. Um, But that kind of the world could go to shit tomorrow and we might not be here, so I have to make it now or I won't make it. kind of attitude that was thrilling and really exciting and it's something when I come to Australia which is the complete opposite Australia is so decorous and um, and you know interested in things like occupational health and safety which in Israel is not even a concept you know um, and bureaucratic my god this country is bureaucratic um, but the end results are more are, are more thorough and more research more considered um, so I guess I try and make a some kind of sandwich of the two things. Oh, like polar opposites? Yeah, completely. 
Israelis and Australians are like polar opposites. I remember I came back, the first time I came back for a holiday, I went to a coffee shop with my mother and um, I like clicked my fingers to call the waiter over and she was horrified and grabbed my arm and pulled it down. She's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just, because in Israel, of course, if you don't do that, the waiter won't come, you know, like, and that little picture for me is the, it's kind of the perfect essence of the difference between Australians and Israelis. Yeah. And that interesting thing about, I guess, being informed by the people you're surrounded by in making work. I've been incredibly blessed to be working for the last four or five years at Chunky Moo, because the little tribe that we've got here, including Anouk, um, but the other dancers are seriously a bunch of the most talented, rigorous thinkers and movers I've ever hung around, and it's like been an absolute joy. And that has totally influenced what I do and how I do it. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes really hard to articulate what those influences are or how it influences you, but are there particular things or are there particular moments? Or Yeah, I would say um, use of improvisation in the creation or the discovery of, of movement material. There's a um, playfulness here that we use and that Anouk engenders um, that allows you to arrive at places you, I never could before um, that appear coincidental, but they're not really. In a way, they're engineered, actually. Um, and uh, I don't know if this makes sense, but a kind of three-dimensionality, like using the space behind your body, um, not f- um, giving preference to the up-down axis, um, yeah, it's it's there's a there's a thing here that's really special. That's really you know I think it's, we still do it. I've been working with them forever, but still sometimes I'll pause, look around at the other moving bodies, and just go, man, you guys are incredible. Hmm. That's really nice. It's really nice. Great way to go into the office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite could be quite awkward. Yeah, totally. Um, so you're developing a show at the moment for Chunky. Um, what's the premise of this work? Um, so the work is called Darawungara, which is the Wiradjuri word for um, to pass through, and it refers to the moment in ceremony when they... I mean, some of this is secret, so I have to be careful about what I reveal and don't, but it's, it's about passing through a ceremonial archway, which is interesting because it's actually really a common feature of ritual from all over the world. Um, so my interest in this... But the very beginnings of this idea actually happened when I was reading an article that I stumbled on on the internet back over a year ago when I was in the process for beluttering. And um, I, I found this article written in 1907 by a gentleman anthropologist by the name of R.H. Matthews, terribly colonial dude, right, um, who embedded himself with... Wiradjuri people still living tribally or semi-tribally. It was the era of missions and pastoral stations. Um, and there was a ceremony that occurred at a place near the Macquarie Marshes, which is where my great-grandfather was from and would probably have been alive at that time. So I like to think that he was there at this ceremony that this anthropologist documented. Um, and the work is a kind of a dilemma. It's my deep desire to do that initiation ceremony so that I can be considered a man by my 
by law by my people. But the ceremony, to my knowledge, and perhaps there are some people who are maintaining it that I don't know about, but to my knowledge is no longer around. And R.H. Matthews, that anthropologist, was part and parcel in the colonial project that took that from me. Yet, thanks to him, I know about it. And I would like to resurrect it. So the dilemma is, how do I resurrect or breathe life into a ceremony that was taken from me and that I don't know about? And my proposal is, invite a whole bunch of people into the space to be witnesses and let's just give it a whirl. That's what Dharawal Nara is going to be. An attempt to use my contemporary toolbox to breathe life into an ancient ceremonial practice that was taken from us as an act of resistance. Yeah, wow. No less. <laughs> and it could totally fall flat on its face, but that would be interesting as well. Well, I mean, it's that, real, it's that tension between somebody's account too and that colonial lens that is looked, looked and captured to then reinterpret in this day and age based on... It's so, so loaded. It's so loaded. He had no idea what he was saying. You know, he would, like, say things like, oh, yeah, I watched the men running around in circles, flapping their arms against their legs, pretending to, uh, pretending to be ducks, you know. And, of course, that's not what was happening. There was some... There was, there was ancient law encoded into that that had been handed down from generation to generation to generation and a Wiradjuri man looking at that would have understood volumes mm. and all he saw was a bunch of men running around you know flapping their arms against their um, their thighs so I don't really I don't, you know actually I don't know how to do this you know like um, but the attempt is interesting so yeah so is the audience, does the audience play a role in the, um, in the shape of this work as well? Yes. Or, yeah. are, they more pa- or are they more passive in, this, in that sense? I would say they're witnesses more than participants. Yeah. But witnesses are str- is more involved than observers. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do appeal to them to help me a little bit for ideas, you know, try and create a bit of a hive mind in the space that might help activate this thing. Um, but just their presence, the energy of their presence and their intention and their love, hopefully they love me, would help stoke the fire of this, this ritual. Mm-hmm. So what's your process in terms of making a work like this? Uh, yes, I love this question because I have, don't have the foggiest idea what my process is because it seems to be diff- completely different every time I make a new work. But in terms of this work, I guess, like, what, how are you making it? Well, this work... I mean, processes can be so loaded, but yeah, essentially, yeah. you know, what, what's your... I walk into the studio and how do I do it? Kind yeah. Of thing. Yeah. Um, so I have been writing a lot. Um, in my previous works, I wrote in order for that to be read, to be heard by the audience. But this time I've been writing a lot and then improvising in response to the writing and then writing in response to the improvisation and so on and so forth, kind of creating this kind of loop. Um, and I've been responding to the article itself 
in kind of a weird way, like I found this ancient talisman and if I just keep pouring over it, or like an ancient scripture, if I just keep pouring over it and repeating it like a mantra, maybe something will pop out of it. Um, which of course hasn't happened, but something has happened and I'm responding to that. Okay. So flapping my arms against my, my thighs, you know, what can I do with that? Um, and, um, I've been just improvising a lot, um, filming myself, observing the improvisations, noting down what interests me and then using that as a kernel for a new improvisation. Um, and then I've got two weeks left basically to make it, two and a half weeks left basically to make it. And now I have a really, really clear idea of the work. And I just need to kind of press and play, I hope. Or I'll get two, two, two days into it and go, oh, no, nah, no, nah, it needs to be something totally different. But I think, I think I know what I'm doing now. Yeah, how exciting. Mm. I mean, you said at the start about finding dance and being in the audition and kind of going, oh, this is what I want to do. And having spent so long actually doing that, what is it about dance that continues to hold you? Or what is it that you want to kind of keep saying through dance? So much. I think dance, more than any other art form, has the ability... Okay, think of it reverse. Like, film allows you to take... You know, think like a film like Avatar can take enormous expanses of time and space and condense them down into the screen on your computer. And you can traverse time and space in a massive way. Theatre is really good at taking you to the now, to the here. You see in real time what's happening between these characters. Dance has the ability to take the moment and to expand that out. So you can almost... You can take one thing or a few things and really pull them apart and really understand it. Something as simple, like a whole, you know, work, like Swan Lake, it's about one thing, and you get to unpack it. Um, so that's one thing I, re I really like. Um, dance allows the possibility for authentic human-to-human -human encounters that I think are becoming more and more precious in this digital world, where I can sit at home and order my Uber Eats and have some guy around on Grinder and um, watch everything on Netflix and never have to have any organic interaction with another human being. I love sitting, when I go and see dance, I try to sit towards the back because I love to see how the audience sways and bobs and moves and laughs and giggles because they're having a visual, physical response to what they're seeing. Mm. And that's real and that's awesome, I think. I think it's one of the most powerful art forms for those reasons yeah. as well. Yeah. I'm just the moving body. is fucking amazing. Like, it's so good. Yeah, it transcends language. It can transcend culture. It can, you know, it can literally transform people in that moment. Uh, and music. What's your uncle? Yeah. Magic. <laughs> it's magic. After this work, what's next? What's what's on for the rest of your year and dancing and straight after we close, we're heading off with Chunky Move on tour to do Complexity of Belonging, um, which is a work that Anouk made ooh, four years ago. It was the first work that I was in here actually. So we're doing that to Western Europe. And then I'm going to take a little bit of a holiday for a few weeks. Nice. And I've got 
the Sydney Festival season of Billardering, and I have a new commission from the Yurrumboi Festival, which is the National Indigenous Arts Festival here in Melbourne. It's a co-commission from Yurrumboi and Liveworks at Performance Space, um, and that work is going to be very queer and naughty and immersive and edible. It's going to be an edible work. An edible, naughty, queer, queer work. work. Yes. Amazing. Yes. That's why now I'm making something that my mother can come and watch because she's not going to be able to come and watch things. You won't want her there. I would love her there, but I wouldn't want to put her through that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find a list of episode notes on the website delvingintodance.com, which also includes links to the next move season. You'll also find a rich archive of episodes, including the voices of Stephanie Lake, Gideon Obazenik, Anouk Van Dyke, and many others. As always, you can find Delving Into Dance on Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, and if you like, go and leave a review. Delving Into Dance relies on the contribution of you, the listener. You can contribute on the website. Every contribution ensures that we can continue to profile amazing dance makers. Delving Into Dance also acknowledges the support of the Victorian government through Creative Victoria. Until next time, take care.